This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to begin with just a, a short anecdote about my own first foray into philosophy. I was a freshman at, uh, at Caltech, uh, you know, physics major, and you know, there were the, the, the required humanities classes that we had to take, and so I, was, I took this philosophy class, and I was excited about it, the idea of diving into deep uh, uh, um, fundamental thoughts. Um, and, but I was uh, immediately dismayed just because the class just felt very, it, it, um, it, it didn't feel like a good class for a lot of reasons. And, and the strongest memory I have of it is, it was a historical survey uh, that started with Descartes. And now having studied philosophy, I love Descartes. There's something really amazing about what he's doing, but uh, the way it was presented to us is, you know, Descartes basically said, ignore everything you know, you know, uh, be completely skeptical, uh, um, we don't even know if the real world exists, the physical world exists. Um, and in the context of when I was uh, an undergraduate, the way the professor presented this is like, what if we're all just brains and boxes? What if we're all living in the matrix where, you know, these batteries hooked up to a machine? Um, how do we, how do we know the real world exists? And as a physics major sitting around, looking, sitting around the room, looking at chemistry majors and engineers, uh, and biologists, uh, I mean, there were some mathematicians there, so who knows what they were thinking, but most of us were there uh, at Caltech to study the real world, to study the physical world and understand the, the physical structure of things. And so this exercise of pretending like the real world didn't exist, like the physical world was, it was an illusion, seemed silly and ungrounded um, and seemed like a waste of time. Uh, and I got a real kind of bad taste for philosophy in, uh, in, uh, after that. Um, it seemed like it was, you know, just presenting weird ideas for the sake of presenting weird ideas. Now, I have to admit, you know, looking back on it, you know, physics class was presenting weird ideas too, uh, particularly as you get into quantum mechanics. Um, there's lots of weird claims that are made about reality as you start to study, well, first relativity, uh, the idea of uh, 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 time dilation uh, and the way that space-time seems to act in very weird ways at high speeds. Um, when you study uh, quantum mechanics and the weird things that are going on in uh, um, uh, at, at, the, at, at the microscopic level, but un unlike the you know unprompted question of whether we're all brains and boxes, this was based off of experiments and observations, some of which I was able to do in class. You know, we I remember doing you know the ones that stand out. I remember doing the, the Millikan oil drop experiment where we measured the quantization of the electric charge in oil drops. Um, we I remember making a high temperature superconductor and seeing a little magnet float on top of it um, uh, when you poured liquid nitrogen on it. There were weird things going on, but there were weird things we were actually seeing, weird things we could try and grapple with uh, observationally and then try to think and reason about. It wasn't just, hey, imagine this crazy idea. Um, and also in some ways, the, 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 the ideas that were weird um, were in a, in a regime that was weird and I was unfamiliar with. I don't, we don't spend most of our time actually interacting directly or thinking really about electrons and protons and individual atoms. Uh, we don't spend most of our time uh, traveling near the speed of light. Uh, so uh, in some ways it seemed reasonable that those things might be unfamiliar and weird. But I had this gut instinct that simply putting forward the idea that the real world doesn't exist uh, and that sort of that sort of skepticism was was ungrounded and unhelpful. Um, I just had a kind of gut instinct that okay, 
I exist, you exist, the physical world exists. Um, I can actually interact with the physical world. Uh, I have a little pinky and I am moving it right now. Like kind of silly little things, but, but foundational ideas that, I felt that, that seemed like um, uh, if, if your philosophy led you to deny those things, um, then something must have gone wrong in the philosophy. That said, though, uh, if you if you uh, if you read various sort of popularizations of science uh, uh, and and even you know uh, of some some physicists, you start to hear some similar kinds of claims explicitly grounded in uh, the work of physics um, coming out of uh, the uh, the the idea of, of uh, space time and special relativity. There's claims that. Um, the, the, the future and the past are an illusion, uh, that the, the flow of time is, is not a, a, a real experience, but an illusion. Um, thing, you have um, versions of uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics that claim things like the many worlds interpretation, where at every measurement, the universe splits into pieces. Uh, and, um, and so there are copies of ourselves following down every single one of these paths. And all sorts of strange and unfamiliar and very uh, um, unclear uh, or, or, or unf unfamiliar ideas about reality uh, that are that are coming out of uh, physics claims that uh, the, the the laws of physics deny uh, our own consciousness deny the possibility of free will deny various things like that and so where where does uh, in, in, in a way what it uh, when, when we when we grapple with those ideas, what we recognize is that, um, uh, or I guess we have to separate what of those ideas is actually the physics, and what of those ideas is actually reasoning about the beyond the physics into philosophy. Um, again, I had this gut instinct that that philosophy was unhelpful, but it turns out that it's not it's not philosophy as such that's unhelpful. It's just that there are certain I would argue certain modes and branches and types of philosophy that are, uh, that, that are unhelpful. But it turns out you can't escape philosophy. You can't completely get away from it. Uh, a good sort of uh, image of this or example of this is in, 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 uh, in Hawking's last book. Uh, he, he opens up, uh, or Stephen Hawking's last book, he opens up on uh, page two saying that philosophy is dead. Um, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's at, as a project, it's over and physics has taken over. And then he spends 200, 200 pages philosophizing, using physics, but doing philosophy built on the physics that he's studying. Um, and so I, uh, there's a way in which um, uh, there, there is the, the instinct of some physicists, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, to claim that philosophy is a complete waste of time, that physics is the only way to actually move forward. There's something to that, because there, are, there is philosophy that is problematic and unhelpful. Um, but the thing is that we can't completely escape it. Physics tells us a lot, but uh, ultimately physics can't tell us everything about reality. Um, so, uh, as much as we would like it to, as much as we would like physics to tell us to be able to fit everything into our physical equations, there are ways in which physics itself is putting, puts limits on what we can ask and what we can say and what we can know. So how do we avoid these sort of unhelpful strains of philosophy? How do we, how do we uh, uh, find a philosophy that, that resonates with reality? That is, I would argue, the, the, a true philosophy. Well, uh, it helps in some ways to have a good guide, to have a good starting point. Um, 
And uh, as a, uh, uh, what what I found in my own uh, uh, journey uh, uh, or rediscovery of philosophy, first as a graduate student in physics, uh, and later as a Dominican, starting from scratch and, and diving into philosophy, is that uh, the the tradition of Saint Thomas, uh, where he that's building on the even more the even older tradition of uh, of Aristotle, has a lot to offer in grounding a healthy understanding of uh, what uh, of the real world, of our place in it, and of our study of the real world in the modern in modern science. Now, this might be surprising. Um, I mean, you know, again, Saint Thomas lived uh, in the 13th century, a um, uh, hundred years before the scientific scientific revolution. Uh, he believed in a world. He believed in geocentrism. He believed in a world built on the four elements uh, ideas that he inherited from from Aristotle. Um, is, isn't that pre-scientific and outdated and, and, and how, how could that possibly be useful? And in a sense, yes, there are aspects of the thought of St. Thomas about the natural world that are not helpful. Uh, I'm not arguing that we should go back to a geocentric view of the world or to the four elements, but there are fundamental insights about reality, uh, about the reality of the natural world and the relationship of the natural world to a broader picture of reality that I think are res resonate well with what we're doing in modern science and help to guide and uh, guide and order our way of thinking about the natural world as we as we uh, as we explore more and more uh, interesting and odd aspects of reality. I think uh, um, the the appealing points to the, that I found with St. Thomas Aquinas or the the foundational ideas that I found to be particularly resonant is that. First, he took the real world seriously. The real world, it exists, right? There is a physical world out there. Um, again, as a scientist, that might seem obvious. Uh, it might seem like that's, you know, uh, uh, something we, you know, uh, how could you possibly doubt that? But in the history of philosophy, there have been uh, people who have doubted such things. But not only does the real world ex exist, it also has order and structure to it. It has a regular pattern to the way that it works, uh, a regular pattern to the way that uh, the, 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 the natural things in the world interact with one another. Uh, and, um, and importantly, uh, um, that those, those, there actually is uh, change in interaction and action in the physical world. It's not simply a, a static thing. Uh, it's not a thing that is uh, inert and unchanging, but it is a dynamic and a changing and uh, uh, and a wonderful thing to behold. Um, it is worth studying uh, in and of itself that, it, it, uh, that the physical world has much to offer to uh, uh, just to our uh, delight and wonder. Um, but he goes beyond that. It's not, he doesn't simply stop with the physical world. He also took human beings seriously, that human beings exist, that we are part of that natural world, but also in a certain way distinct from it. That um, we have, we are this unique union of body and soul. That there are, there is an immaterial principle in us that distinguishes us from the rest of the natural world. I have a body. I am a physical being, and so the rules, of the, the the laws of physics and chemistry and biology apply to me for sure. But there are things that I do that are distinct from from the uh, from from the things that 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 non-human 
um, uh, uh, parts of uh, of reality uh, are able to do, and that, and importantly, it's not uh, uh, this. While while um, arguing for the, the the uniqueness of the human person, it's not as if we are somehow outside of nature. Uh, we we have our we have uh, our our physical bodies, and the body matters. That we it is it is it is an integral part of us, not an accidental part of us. We're not some sort of uh, brain that's trapped in this flesh cage. Uh, we are integrated with uh, our bodies, and it is something that we should be. Uh, uh, that, that, that the more we know about our bodies, the more we understand about ourselves. But we're not just the body either. That um, that what we have with what, what our body is is uh, 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 is is taken to a new level by uh, the intellectual uh, powers that we have to think, to reason, to choose. Uh, that we use our, uh, our our senses, our physical, uh, our, our hands, and our eyes and our ears in the process of coming to know about the physical world, but then we can go beyond simply sensing and observing and think more deeply and reason uh, about the physical world and come to not simply marvel in the patterns as they are immediately present to us, but we can start to understand and, uh, uh, understand and deepen our understanding of those patterns, to come to see the beauty and the order that's there and to find connections between this pattern and that pattern. Uh, uh, so we have a, uh, a power to interact with the world, both uh, in a physical way, but also in an intellectual way. Uh, and that it, there's a, a beauty to that. And finally, he took, he, uh, in addition to all of this, he took God seriously. In some sense, uh, um, you know, uh, St. Thomas was not himself a scientist, and not even himself primarily a philosopher. Uh, his day job was being a theologian. Um, and he took God seriously, but he didn't take God seriously in what I would say is a fideistic way. Uh, he didn't think of God as uh, God and faith as something, dis, as something completely cut off from the physical world or our understanding of ourselves. He actually, he argued that it was from the very understanding and interaction we have with the physical world that we can come to know and understand who God is, that we can reason to uh, and see uh, uh, and, and uh, argue for the exist existence of God from the very physical world that we see. And the more that we study and understand the physical world, the more we understand and, and, and can glory in the God who created it. He thought that God was immediately related, intimately related to the physical world in a way that, uh, and to human beings in a way that was not uh, uh, in conflict. Um, and that the more that we understand the physical world, the more, uh, the, if we understand, the more that we understand nature, uh, it's not as if by understanding this piece of nature, we are somehow removing God from the picture, but the more that we understand the natural world, the more we understand the workings of the natural order, the more that we actually understand the God who created them and draw deeper into that, 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 that mystery. Um, so by studying creation, we are studying the natural world, but also studying the one who knew, the one who created it and the one who, who, uh, who, who built us into it. So that's in, in a, the big picture of uh, the appeal in some sense of, uh, uh, of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, that I had personally, like how I came to 
what I came to value of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, and why I found that resonated with um, not simply uh, my, my gut instincts, but also the, the, very, uh, the very things that I was, uh, uh, the very reasons that I had gotten into studying nature and studying physics in the first place. Uh, my entry into physics was, uh, um, was in some ways through mathematics, through this understanding that the mathematical world, the, the, the world of mathematics actually can say something real about the physical world. That there are patterns and order in the physical world that, that we can um, that we uh, that that um, that we can apply uh, uh, mathematical tools to, um, and the more that we you know the more that we dive into the, uh, the, the the patterns of the world, the more that we can understand this mathematical order. Yeah, but it's interesting to step back and think of why why should there be a, a mathematical picture uh, order to the world at all. Why should there be, why, why should it be possible to apply a mathematical equation to the physical world to write down an equation that actually describes what's going to happen in your experiment? Why should there be the sorts of regularity and, uh, regularity and patterns that we find? Uh, and in some sense, we need to explain those things. As, as scientists, as physicists, it's something we take for granted that yes, we can take our mathematical tools and actually say something about the world. But ultimately, we need to understand some, we need, that that very process itself needs an explanation, and that is where uh, uh, you know where our uh, the, the the deeper thought of philosophy can come in. And I would argue that the, the thought of Saint Thomas has a great is a great tool and entry into understanding uh, that that deeper uh, uh, it, it, understanding the physical order in a more uh, uh, understanding that relationship of um, the, the mathematics and the physical order of the, the intricacy and, uh, and structure of the natural world, and also how the natural world fits into this bigger picture that includes human beings as, uh, 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 with our reason and our, our, our free will, uh, and includes the idea of God as the creator who orders and sustains the natural order in the way that it does. So, all of this may or may not sound nice to you. Uh, it sounded nice to me in some sense, but does this actually fit with modern science in physics in particular? Does this picture, this, this philosophical uh, picture painted by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas actually uh, uh, cohere with the, the developments that have uh, come about since the time of Newton? All the great uh, successes and, and all the great uh, uh, gifts that we have received from uh, the uh, from from modern science. I mean, in some sense, it seems like uh, there's an argument to be made that uh, that the the scientific revolution was a rejection of Saint Thomas Aquinas and that tradition coming out of Aristotle. Uh, many of uh, the, the the early modern scientists, if you read Descartes or Newton. Uh, and many of their contemporaries, they were explicitly rejecting the Aristotelian picture of the world that came before them, uh, both in terms of the detail, so rejecting, the ge for instance, the geocentric idea of the world. Uh, eventually, you know, chemistry only really took off when it was able to uh, step away from the four elements picture of uh, how the material order works, uh, that the, the world is not simply earth, air, fire, and water mixed in various ways, but that there is uh, uh, the, 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 the picture of 
um, the first the the atoms in general, the the complexity of the periodic table, and then diving into the particles that underlie them. Uh, but even in in terms of the not simply the details of the physical order, but the very uh, ideas that underlied the way that that Aristotle and Aquinas uh, began to talk about the world, the very terminology they used was rejected by many of these early modern uh, scientists. There is uh, strong pejorative language reject rejecting ideas like uh, substantial form, the idea that there should be uh, there's some sort of organizing principle to um, uh, to different parts of nature that um, that uh, a squirrel has some uh, substantial form that, that that makes it to be a squirrel, uh, that a rock has a substantial form that makes it to be a rock. Um, uh, for, De for, for Descartes uh, and for many of the, um, uh, the early modern scientists, uh, this seemed mysterious and unhelpful. Uh, it seemed like that the, there were better ways to try and describe nature than with uh, these, these general principles. Um, they rejected the idea of teleology or, or, or final causality, that, uh, that nature has purposes and goals to it. Um, uh, Aristotle and Aquinas view nature uh, as having inherent, uh, this inherent goal-directedness to it in a certain way. That, uh, uh, that earth tends to go down, fire tends to go up, that uh, um, uh, trees have a goal of growing to be adult, or growing to be mature trees, and a goal of producing new trees. That uh, um, that a lion has the goal of of hunting and eating and uh, uh, and eventually uh, growing mature, uh, eventually reproducing and making more lions. Um, there, the the in many ways there the uh, some of the a lot of the progress in some ways of modern science. Uh, is built on rejecting some of those ideas or, 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 or seeming to do so. And what I want to say is that, yes, there were clear aspects of the Aristotelian picture, the kind of um, the, the, the tradition that came out of that Aristotelian picture, uh, broadly called scholasticism, the sort of intellectual pattern of the, the, the Middle Ages uh, in Europe that St. Thomas Aquinas was uh, was uh, integral part of. Um, there were trends in scholasticism that arguably presented a deeper investigation of the real world, uh, of the physical world. Um, there was, uh, in some sense, a certain um, humility and even pessimism about our ability to, to fully understand the physical world. There was an idea that, um, yes, uh, you know, uh, the, the picture of uh, physical objects being mixtures of earth, air, fire, and water tell you a lot, but there are other parts of nature that seem to go beyond that. And in some ways are, uh, we, we can identify them, but we could never understand them. A good example of this are, are magnets. You know, mag uh, um, you know, magnets were known to, uh, to Aristotle um, and they were you know, this fascinating and mysterious thing. Every other heavy physical object falls down. Uh, and yet these magnets have this strange ability to attract iron to them. Uh, there's no way in this sort of Aristotelian picture to make sense of how is it that some, some combination of the, 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 the powers and the activity that we're used to seeing in earth, air, fire, and water could explain a magnet attracting a piece of iron. And there was no, there was no, no way to make that, to make that connection. Um, 
And the thought, the, 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 when, you know, when Aquinas deals with this question, he, he, uh, he approaches it with a certain humility and a certain pessimism that, okay, um, we can't make sense of this in terms of earth, air, fire, and water, uh, in terms of these sort of this, uh, in terms of the chemistry of his day. Uh, but that doesn't, but that does, he, he argued that, okay, this is something natural, but something that will, but that is something that is not intelligible to us in the sense that the way that we observe things, the way that we, we sense things is built on our own uh, being, being made of earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, our own, uh, um, uh, our, our senses are built on the ability to uh, interact with things in that mode. And so there's something about these, the, these types of power, magnetism, other examples that he brought up that are simply beyond our intellectual abilities. Uh, that they're they're natural, they're things we can find and observe, but we'll never be able to, to fully explain them more fully, uh, to, to explain them more fully than simply to be able to observe. And so there, yeah, there were there were limits in some ways that came out of that scholastic tradition. Um, but uh, but the point of, but, but it's uh, it's important to recognize that um, what, uh, what, what was, uh, uh, what the, the reaction to this, uh, the, the early modern scientists recognizing the fact that these limitations, recognizing the failure of the kind of scholastic tradition to dive more deeply into many of these natural phenomena, decided to reject the scholastic picture, to reject, uh, reject the kind of tradition coming out of Aristotle uh, completely and say, okay, this is completely useless and let's start from scratch. Um, and they, they put forward in some ways, arguably they thought uh, a picture of the world that was completely different, completely antithetical to uh, the, the Aristotelian picture of the, of, of the world uh, um, as they saw. The picture was ultimate, uh, was um, in broad strokes, it was uh, atomistic. It was that, okay, the physical world is made up of little tiny pieces that move around. Um, uh, we can't observe these small pieces, but they're there. Um, they push on one another, they interact with one another, um, they can attract one another. And by fully describing the, uh, the, uh, how these um, hard, unbreakable little pieces push and pull and interact with one another, that's uh, any real explanation of the physical order is gonna be built on this atomistic uh, uh, picture of the world and these fundamental basic rules about how these little atoms move. Um, there's, that's a, I mean, that's uh, a very sketchy picture of a lot of, a lot of different uh, arguments that were put forward as to how exactly to understand what was going on uh, uh, about, about the foundations of early modern physics. Uh, but it's starkly different from the Aristotelian picture that came before that focused on, uh, that focused on holes, that focused on uh, trees and rocks and individual animals, uh, that focused on um, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, that's that's foundation was built on the whole rather than the underlying part. Um, and so this, uh, there's a way in which it seems like the um, uh, uh, the, the, the very growth of modern science um, needed a rejection of uh, the Aristotelian scholastic picture that came before. Um, and 
I think in some ways uh, it, it, it did in the sense that it needed a rejection of parts of it. It needed to move beyond certain ways of thinking. Uh, there were aspects of the scholastic picture that over the centuries had become um, you know, unhelpful. Uh, the, the, uh, the, um, the humility and pessimism about the physical world while in some sense grounded in, 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 in uh, a, uh, a deep thought about the physical world, it turns out it was, it was misplaced, that we can know more about the physical world by diving in more deeply using different tools, um, that uh, the power of observation in mathematics was, while respected and understood uh, by Aristotle to a certain extent, was, nowhere, was more powerful and more amazing than Aristotle and Aquinas ever could have imagined. Uh, and so the, the development of modern science uh, goes well beyond, uh, we, we, we know uh, was able to dive more deeply into the physical world in a way that seemed at, uh, in, in many ways to keep getting further and further away from the Aristotelian and Thomistic picture of how the world was built or, or how the world was viewed. So, but uh, in, in, in some sense, uh, from the time of Newton uh, up until uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the beginning of the 20th century, it seemed to be this sort of steady move uh, in, in broad strokes, a steady move away from this uh, Aristotelian and Thomistic way of thinking about it, this scholastic picture of the world. And we seem to be getting farther and farther away into this uh, mechanistic and uh, uh, atomistic way of thinking about the world. But uh, I would argue that uh, things change in the 20th century and leading up to and in the 20th century, that there are ways in which the, the, uh, the physics that we, that we study now, after uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the rise of, special, uh, of relativity and quantum mechanics, is actually more Aristotelian than the classical physics that came before. Um, it's, not a it's not a complete rehearsal of the, the world that uh, Aristotle and Aquinas put forward. Uh, it's not a return to geocentrism and the four elements, but there are underlying features that are a return to the Aristotelian and Thomistic way of talking about the world. Uh, and three sort of specific examples that come out of this are that uh, the, the idea that the world is not completely deterministic. The hope and the, or the, the thought and the goal for most, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, most thinkers uh, uh, and most physicists in the early modern period was that the laws of physics uh, are exact and deterministic. That um, uh, uh, in, um, uh, if we could, uh, if we could discover all of the proper uh, the complete set of laws of physics, uh, the complete rules by which forces act on masses, the complete rules by which uh, 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 the different types of forces, be they uh, uh, a physical object pushing and pulling on one another, the attraction and repulsion of electricity and magnetism, uh, the, the rules of uh, thermodynamics. If we had a complete set of all of these physical rules, uh, all of the physical laws, and we knew uh, the state of the world at any uh, at any one moment, then the physical laws would be able, would would allow us to predict exactly the future at any moment uh, uh, ex ex the state of the universe at any moment in the future. 
Now, there was no, uh, no one thought this would ever actually happen, but the idea was that, there, that the, 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 the structure of the world uh, was inherently deterministic, that uh, all you needed to know was where things are now and uh, uh, what, what, the rule, what the laws of physics are, uh, and everything else, uh, 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 and, and, and everything about the future could be known exactly. And this is problematic for a, a, uh, uh, for a fuller picture of, uh, uh, of reality. Uh, in particular, it makes, uh, uh, while it, uh, it might seem to give us a very concrete and detailed knowledge of, of the physical world, it seems to leave the rest, uh, the idea of uh, the, the possibility of there being human beings as uh, distinct uh, knowers and actors in the world, uh, and, um, it seems to make that, that, that possibility uh, uh, very unlikely. The idea that there is something uh, unique about the human person that is able to, uh, to, first of all, observe and more importantly, act in the world um, the idea that I actually have control over my little pinky right now um, is very problematic if the world is actually deterministic. And yet, as we know, uh, in quantum mechanics, uh, there seems to be a push away from that, that absolute determinism in the world. Uh, that as we dove down deeper to these fundamental particles, uh, the, the, that hope, that goal of being able to find a set of deterministic laws to describe the motion of every single piece of matter uh, fail. Uh, what we found is that there is uh, a limit on how deeply we can understand, how deeply we can, how, how much we can predict about the future of any particular physical system. That the more that we understand about a physical system and understand the details of it, uh, the less we can uh, uh, predict about where it's going to be in the future. That there are limits on the, our ability to say exactly what is going to happen, even if we had a perfect knowledge of everything we could want to know about uh, uh, any particular uh, the, the state of the universe. In fact, it says we can't even complete that project of knowing the state of the universe. That there is, uh, at least under certain interpretations of quantum mechanics, there's not an actual answer to um, every question, we, there's not a simultaneous answer to every question that we would want to know about the universe, about where everything is, how it's moving, and what it's doing. Uh, there are, there are uh, ways of interpreting quantum mechanics that are deterministic, uh, but there are ways of interpreting quantum mechanics that aren't, that are fundamentally probabilistic, fund, fundamentally statistical. And uh, what we see is that physics, as far as we can tell, doesn't answer that question for us. Is the world deterministic or not? Uh, there's, uh, uh, the physics of itself hasn't answered that question for us. Um, there are, there are uh, 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 philosophical ideas that we can build on top of our physics to claim one way or the other, but, but the science itself is actually limiting how much that we can know about the physical world. In some sense, it's vindicating something of the intuition uh, of Aristotle and St. Thomas, that there, there could be limits on, every, on the sorts of questions we might ask. Now, the place where Aristotle and Aquinas put those limits was way too high. We could know a lot more about the physical world than they, than they thought. But there seem to be limits on the sorts of answers that we can get through our study of physics. Um, further, there seems to be a, um, uh, 
the, 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 that indeterminism opens up the possibility that there is, uh, um, that, that there are, uh, or, or, or leaves open the possibility that humans have a role to play in the physical world, that we have a role to act and react with the physical order in a concrete and real way. Um, another, uh, another change in, uh, that in, in moving from classical physics to contemporary physics that is more conducive to that kind of Aristotelian Thomistic view is a certain rejection of the atomism uh, that came in classical physics. That might sound surprising because we still talk about atoms, we still talk about particles. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a theoretical particle physicist, so um, what, what are we doing if not studying this, the, the little pieces that go together and we, that, that, that build up the physical world around us? But there's an important difference between the way that we think about particles in a contemporary context and the way that, uh, part, that, that the, the, the atoms and the, the, the particles that were, uh, that were uh, uh, supposed to exist, uh, that were thought to exist in the early modern period. Because the atoms and the, and, and the physical things that we find uh, are uh, small and fundamental. They, they are the pieces and parts out of which everything is made, but they themselves are not indestructible. There's a way in which uh, the atoms, if you read, the, you know, if you look at how Newton speculated on how the atomic world worked, if you look at the early uh, uh, work in chemistry of Dalton and looking at sort of how to understand these atoms, the understanding was that these atoms were unbreakable physical things and that the, the physical world was simply just a rearrangement of a set, set amount of parts that preexisted. You had a certain amount of atoms or particles or, or smallest pieces that existed in the world. And all of physics was just rearranging those pieces and parts. Uh, you, have, you have your set of Legos, you rearrange them to make this or that or the other. And that's all that, that, that's what physics was. But we now know that even the things that we talk about as being fundamental, the smallest pieces, uh, uh, electrons, uh, uh, the quarks, the photons, these are not unbreakable, indestructible things. Uh, electrons can uh, can annihilate with a positron and, and and turn into photons. They transmute into one another. They change from one thing into another in a way that that, that is not uh, un, that they're not unbreakable. And for various reasons, that underlies uh, the idea uh, that was uh, or, or or points to and and argues for uh, the existence of um, the very. Uh, the very idea that many of the, the, the early moderns rejected of substantial form, that there needs to be something that uh, gives organization to matter in different, uh, in different modes. That what is it that makes this thing to be an electron versus a photon? Um, if I have uh, a high energy photon that uh, paraproduces uh, an electron and a positron, what, what Un, what underlies, what are the principles that underlie that change? How is it that this photon can become something completely different? Um, it's not that the photon is made up of something, made up of little pieces and parts, and I you know, take my Legos apart and put them back another way to get my electron and positron. Uh, that there's, there's a fundamental change uh, of, of this, uh, this photon into the electron and the positron in a way that is, uh, uh, it is not uh, uh, atomistic at its core. Uh, and that, again, kind of goes back to and, and uh, resurrects some of the principles 
if not the language that uh, that uh, Aristotle and, uh, and, and Aquinas built their view of nature on. Um, and uh, finally, there's a certain, uh, well, yeah, okay, I'm gonna, um, I'm going a little longer than I have, so I'm gonna step ahead. Um, the other, the other uh, uh, so these are, those are two examples of the way in which the very developments of modern science have uh, uh, pushed back against or, or returned in little ways to uh, Aristotelian and arguably Thomistic ways of thinking about the world. There's actually a lot of very interesting and, and very uh, intriguing work that's being done in the philosophy of science, looking back to uh, Aristotelian way, uh, Aristotelian terminology and ideas, and finding them very useful for making sense of certain questions and quandaries in physics and chemistry and biology, um, trying to use certain Thomistic ideas to interpret what's going on in quantum mechanics. Um, Heisenberg himself uh, uh, sort of suggested the idea that the quantum wave function is a return to the Aristotelian notion of potentiality of, of this. Uh, it's a, an expression of the possibility of being that something could have. Um, uh, so there's, there's, an, there's a lot of interesting uh, resonance with uh, contemporary modern science and some of the at least principles, if not the details of the Aristotelian Thomistic way of thinking about the world. But I would argue it's, it's, it's more foundational than that. It's not simply what physics is telling us, but the very fact that there's physics at all that argues for the a Aristotelian way of talking about the world. And, and why do, uh, what do I mean by that? What is physics? What is, what is science? What are we doing when we're studying the world? There's a way in which, particularly as a theoretical physicist, um, it can be very easy to think about the, uh, uh, physics as being that, that what physics is at its core is finding that one equation that describes everything. If I could write the Lagrangian of the universe, that would be physics. Uh, if I could write out every, if I could write out uh, the, the, the rules that underlie um, uh, every possible field, uh, or if you dive deeper into string theory, uh, that underlie that, that, that the ordering of the, uh, of the strings, um, the, the, the interaction between them. If I could write out that mathematical equation that describes everything, that's ultimately what physics is. And there is some truth to that. Uh, physics is ultimately mathematics uh, or mathematical. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, the power of physics comes in our ability to write these uh, amazing and beautiful equations that describe reality. But we don't just sit down and write an equation and hope it works. To get those equations, to get that, that mathematical picture, we have to go out and observe the world and experiment on it. Um, while the theoretical physicists, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, uh, as a theoretical physicist, I stopped doing experiments as a sophomore, well, a junior in college. Um, I talk to experimental, experimentalists now and again, uh, but you know, I, I, I spent my time thinking about the world, uh, working through mathematical equations, and at times maybe writing a computer simulation to describe something or test some idea. But there's a way in which uh, um, it, could, it became easy at times to forget that all of the mathematical formulas we're writing all, the, all the, 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 the mathematical picture we want to make of the world is useless if we can't actually connect it to something we're observing, interacting with. That the theoretical physicist can't get anywhere if he doesn't have his experimental colleague. If he doesn't have somebody to build the experiment, to build 
the Large Hadron Collider to smash protons together to find out what's in there. Uh, without the experimentalists to give us, uh, to, to confirm or disconfirm these amazing mathematical pictures we're doing, we're just kind of mathematical philosophers. We're coming up with neat, neat ideas. We're coming up with neat patterns, but we don't really know if they're true or not. Uh, there is a whole history in debates in the philosophy of science of what actually is the scientific method. What is it that is the grounding of how science works? But I'd argue that there's a, a continuity again, uh, despite all the different disagreements and arguments about, uh, about the details of how science works, that there are you know, a, a, a series of basic fundamental ideas that everyone would agree are necessary for a full picture of science. Uh, in physics in particular, that it has some basis in observation experimentation. We have to actually uh, observe and experiment on the, uh, we, 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 we get the raw data from observing and experimenting on the physical world. That mathematical models are a powerful tool for describing reality. Um, not every science is ultimately mathematical in the way that physics is, but that is a certain uh, ideal and uh, uh, a certain power to the mathematical way of describing the world. And that, uh, that, that the project of science is ultimately reasonable, logical, um, exactly how it links up to uh, um, the details of the, the rules of logic, uh, the details of the, the human activity of reasoning. There, there are questions and, and details there, but it's not random. It's not irrational. Um, and these three principles of, of observation, the mathematical model, and reasoning uh, jump out at us if we ever look at any particular experiment that we, that we do. Uh, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the one that, that comes to mind as, as a great picture of this is, is this Millikan oil drop experiment. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, um, there's a, a cloud of oil uh, droplets that are uh, being suspended in an electric field. You can adjust the electric field uh, and try to, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and try uh, to, uh, until the electric force that is being pushed upwards on these uh, charged uh, oil droplets uh, is balanced with the force of gravity pulling the oil droplets down. Uh, and we can, and uh, it was one of the, the, the primary tools, the first tools by which uh, we began to be able to measure the, the charge of the, of the electron it, uh, and confirm the fact that, it, that it had, there was an, a charge of the electron to talk about, that this, this electric charge that had been known for centuries um, had these, uh, what was, was, was quantized in these, in these discrete, uh, 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 um, in, in, in discrete quantities. But the actual act of running the oil drop experiment is, uh, uh, is a very human act. There's a machine that, uh, that, that in my case wasn't designed, Milligan had to come up with it himself, but uh, there, there's a, a complicated physical object that we have to interact with, that we have to uh, inject the, uh, the oil drops, uh, we have to control the electric field, we have to look through uh, a little microscope to, 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 to watch and balance uh, and find that point where uh, the, the forces are equilibrium, the oil drops aren't moving anymore, that, that the very uh, act of doing this experiment requires a certain confidence that there is something physical in front of me, that I have some sort of control over it, 
then I had the ability to observe it, that I had the ability to, uh, to, to observe and know what's going on. But that, that's not enough. I have to then actually think about and think deeply about what's going on to reason to why is it that I'm seeing the particular pattern that I do? How does this particular pattern link up with other patterns I've seen in nature elsewhere? Uh, that uh, that that uh, there's a, there's a that the very process of experimentation argues for the existence of the human person. That science doesn't happen without scientists. Experiments don't happen unless someone is running that experiment. If we don't have the ability to choose what to experiment on, to design an experiment and and adjust the physical world in a way that allows us to observe specific things, uh, to choose what to experiment on and how to, uh, what our control will be, what our different, uh, uh, what, what aspects will change. And to reason about and think about what's going on in that experiment. If we don't have the ability to be observers, to be choosers, to be actors in the physical world, then the very project of science falls apart. Where do we even begin to get our equations to describe the physical world if we don't have human persons as scientists, uh, as observers observing the world? Um, and so there's a way in which, uh, as much as we might, uh, as, as much as we might abstract away from the person that's observing, uh, when we think about the, the, the laws and the rules of physics, uh, we can't ever completely remove the observer from what's going on. That the very foundation of science is a human endeavor, uh, and that human person needs to be uh, someone that can uh, th that can observe the world someone that, that in some sense can control the world in some limited sense, someone that has the freedom to choose how to control the world, and someone that can think deeply about how that world works. In all of these pictures, uh, all, uh, uh, the very, so our very understanding of the physical world we love requires a deep understanding of who the, who the human person, who the human person is. And so if we find ourselves looking at our physics, looking at our science and claiming that the human person doesn't exist or that some fundamental aspect of the human person doesn't exist, our ability to observe, our ability to know, our ability to choose, then we're actually undercutting the very foundations of the scientific process in the first place. So I'd argue that the very project of science requires a deeper, a deeper view of the world that is very much in resonance with those fundamental principles that, uh, that Aquinas laid out. That yes, there is a, a real world that exists. It has order and beauty and structure to it, but that uh, there are human beings in the world as well that are part of the physical world and interact with it, but also in a way have independence from it, have a certain control over it and ability to think about it uh, and, and, and observe it in a way that is uh, that they're not simply cogs in the machine of the physical world. Uh, and now you might, so th this uh, broad picture I painted of the way that uh, uh, the, the thought of St. Thomas resonates with uh, the physical world, um, uh, resonates with uh, contemporary ideas about the physical world, uh, contemporary ideas of modern science, and uh, the very process of doing modern science. Um, there are arguably other ideas about the physical world, uh, other philosophies of the physical idea that are also, that, that share some of those principles, that take the physical world seriously, that 
take the um, the uh, the world of uh, uh, the, the human person seriously, but don't don't necessarily use all of the the tools or or, or terminology or, or or ideas that Aquinas did. Why would I? Why what what um, uh, what, what pushes? Why, why would I suggest? Why would I argue that the Thomistic way of thinking about the world is is the right way to think about the world? And my argument for that would be partially about the natural world. Um, I think there are a lot of details that we get into about the physical world that resonate even more clearly with Aquinas than, than, than I explicated here uh, uh, in, in more detail, but also that the picture that Aquinas has uh, about the physical world is amazingly and beautifully con continuous with a picture about the human person, what the human person is, about our ability to act and to choose, and our, about our ability to, uh, uh, and, our, and, and, and about what it means to be a human person and what it is that we hope for in our, uh, 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 as human beings. What it is to be happy, what it is to be uh, a good human person, and ultimately what, it, uh, uh, what our place in the universe is, what our place in the natural world is, and what our relationship to the God who created the natural world. Uh, and so there's a way in which um, the, the ultimate argument for uh, a Thomistic uh, uh, philosophy is not simply going to be rooted in physics, um, but I think it's, but it starts there. It starts with a, a, a respect for and a love for the physical world, and yet we can build on top of that a more, uh, a, a, an, even, uh, uh, an even more beautiful picture of how that physical world uh, is part of and resonates with uh, a broader cosmology, uh, a broader way of thinking about the universe that ultimately leads to uh, the core of who we are as individuals, but our relationship with one another, and ultimately our relationship with God, the one who created us, who gave us the world to investigate, who gave us the very possibility of doing science, of doing physics, and falling in love with the beauty, beauty and order that we see. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop uh, a little longer than I'd hoped, but I'm happy to take any questions on, on anything I said. So thank you very much. Uh, and and uh, again, it's, it's great to be with you. I guess the first one, what, what do you think of John Paul's encyclical Fides et Ratio? I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of striking uh, if you, if, if, if you've read Fides et Ratio, um, that the Pope would write an encyclical uh, the, the head of the Catholic Church would write an encyclical on philosophy. Uh, and yet there's a way in which um, there, there's a, a very uh, beautiful resonance there. That, um, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the Pope John Paul II, who uh, was an alumnus of the Angelicum, the institution I'm, I'm teaching at right now, um, recognized that uh, there's a beauty uh, that, that, um, that that faith and reason are not opposed to one another. That the more that we know about the physical world through science, the more that we think about and deeply about the physical world, we're not somehow excluding God from the picture by thinking more deeply. That the more we think about and understand the physical world, the more that we can know and love God as well. And that if uh, that that uh, you know, in in the, in in the words of John Paul II, you know that uh, that faith and reason are two wings, two aspects of the human condition by which we are lifted up to a deeper truth. Um, that there is a, a resonance and a consonance between the things that we come to know by revelation and believe through the scriptures about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, 
and the very the things that we come to know about the world by by studying the details of physics and chemistry and biology. Uh, and so I think that's a, a, a beautiful enough value. So it's it's a, a great encyclical and, and a great principle to to to, to, to draw upon. Okay, so there's a couple of questions here that seem to be uh, um, talking about sort of neuroscience in the brain uh, and sort of the electrochemical things that are going on, the details of what's going on in neuroscience in the brain. Um, so I'm not a neuroscientist, so I mean, I've read different things about uh, um, uh, the details of neuroscience, but there's a line of reasoning or a, or a line of argumentation saying that um, roughly speaking, um, the, uh, you know, um, well, there, there are two ways of arguing it. One is to say that um, uh, ultimately, yes, you know, quantum mechanics is, is probabilistic and, and statistical, but by the time you get to sort of the biochemistry that's going on in the brain, we're really kind of back to a deterministic picture of the world, that ultimately the functioning of the brain in neuroscience is roughly classical and primarily uh, deterministic. Uh, and, uh, and so there's no room in the functioning of the brain for, um, uh, uh, for something like free will, uh, for something that is uh, um, the, the as, as Aquinas would argue, this is immaterial principle that is somehow affecting the physical order. But even if you go, don't go that far, uh, if you, if you, you know, if, even if you think about it as, as a statistical picture of what's going on, that there's some sort of you know uh, randomness and uh, going on in the physical world, there still is this sort of nagging question at times. Okay, how how is it that some you know immaterial principle uh, can have an effect on the physical world? Uh, where is it going to be? What force is it going to use to push on this electron or that electron? What um, uh, uh, yeah what 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 how did, how is it going to affect the energy of what's going on in in, in this state or that state? And uh, that's a, that's a, it's a good question, but it's, it's a, it's a complicated question in some sense. Um, and I don't have, I guess I, I want to say, I, I, I don't have a physics answer for, uh, um, you know, the, the mechanism by which free will works. Um, you know, Descartes, uh, sort of famously, uh, tried to, tried to, you know, find the place in the brain where the immaterial soul pushes and pokes on things to, to, to move the, the, um, the sort of machine or almost, you know, the, the, the marionette of the, of the human person. And he thought it was the pineal gland. Pineal gland. It's a specific spot in the brain that gets pushed around by the, by, by, by the mind, by the soul, uh, and that's what causes the body to move. I think that's, that's not the sort of answer we should be looking for. And that's not simply a point about uh, punting on uh, uh, the question uh, uh, in, in this case, because I think, um, uh, a, a part I um, sort of skipped uh, because of time uh, is that as we as we look more deeply at the different layers that we see in the physical world, what we're seeing is that 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 picture that Aquinas had, that instinct that Aristotle had, that we have to think about holes, that we have to think about different layers of reality, uh, has come back into into fashion and has sort of forced itself upon us. Um, that while yes, you know, the, the theoretical physicist, the, the particle physicist in me would love it, love it if simply talking about electrons and quarks would say everything about the world. It turns out that uh, if you talk to chemists, you talk to people who deal with uh, uh, um, uh, 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 
so, uh, who, who deal with, who, who try to work out the quantum mechanics of what's going on in even something as simple as a glass of water. How is it that the, the quantum mechanical principles that underlie how hydrogen and oxygen atoms move around, uh, how the individual molecules of water work, how does that translate into the kind of picture we see in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in water about you know, the fact that it can freeze and, and, uh, and, and, and boil and evaporate. The quantum mechanical picture or description, you know, if you, if you try to describe, uh, and this is a little bit out of my area of expertise, but if you try to describe, um, you know, uh, the mathematically completely how, say, 10 uh, water molecules interact with one another, the type of mathematical picture you're going to get leaves no space for something like a phase change. Um, there's, 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 there is a, uh, there's sort of one type of solution uh, to, to that, to, to that question. Um, and, and uh, the, the mathematics describing that picture is smoothly continuous uh, in a way that doesn't allow for uh, um, kind of discrete uh, phase changes. But when, but we see the fact that there is these phase changes, we see that there's something discreetly different about water as ice versus water as liquid versus water as gas. Uh, in the very mathematical structure that's used in uh, kind of quantum chemistry and thermodynamics, what we see is that um, when, we, we, uh, when we approach that larger limit, there seems to be a mathematical discontinuity between the type of answer we want to give for 10 water molecules, and the type of answer we want to give for a glass of water. They're related to one another, they're built on the same principles, but there's something different about the answer at the larger scale than the, than the smaller scale. Um, and there, these types of questions uh, have led a lot of um, uh, philosophers of chemistry and philosophers of biology, a lot of chemists and biologists to push back against the, the kind of uh, the idea that chemistry is simply just uh, applied physics. Uh, and that biology is simply just applied chemistry. That all of these sciences are ultimately reduced down to particle physics or string theory or whatever our most fundamental physics is. They're rooted in physics, but there's something else going on at the higher scales that we have to take account of and that we need to actually interact with the thing at that scale to make sense of what's, to make full sense of what's going on. I think that kind of picture carries up even to the human person. That there's a way in which if we simply look at how all the particles and uh, uh, in in the brain were, were functioning, um, they would be they would be absolutely obeying the normal laws, normal rules of quantum mechanics, and there would uh, there would be no specific evidence of uh, anything weird going on. Uh, but that at the large scale, there's some new phenomenon that we didn't see at that smaller scale. That that doesn't that doesn't uh, manifest itself uh, in, uh, um, uh, in in the individual motion of a uh, of, of the smaller pieces, or doesn't make itself obvious in that way. Um, a kind of image of this to kind of get a sense, which is a little cartoonish, but by, but is, I think is helpful. It's put forward by Elizabeth Anscombe, who's a philosopher um, uh, for, uh, for the 20th century, um, who, in talking about this question about sort of determinism and indeterminism and the question of the possibility of free will said to imagine a box full of little colored particles, things you can, you know, like think glitter. You've got a box of glitter. All of the little pieces of glitter are the same uh, size and weight and properties, but they're different colors. 
and they're in a machine that's constantly shaking them. And so the, the colors and patterns are const is constantly changing when you look at the box. Uh, and there's lots of, uh, and you could analyze the box and see a lot of things and see, okay, what is the, you know, the, the mathematical, uh, 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 you, could, you could work out the mathematics of the chance of certain patches of color that you get, you know, uh, a spot of color of, of blue of this size, how, what's the chance of this happening or not happening? Um, what's the chance, uh, how, how long would it last before it broke apart? Um, but if you, uh, so while at, the, at this, the, that small micro scale, you could work out the mathematics of what's going on. If you would imagine that in that box, there was on the side of that box, uh, the, the word Coca-Cola is, is the example she said, just was there all the time in different colors, in different places, in different sizes, chain, you know, so, so um, such that if you look at any small piece, the small piece obeys completely the rules of what's going on, obeys completely the rules of the, 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 the small scale vibration of these individual particles. But if you look at it from the larger picture, there'd be something else going on that's not, that could not fully be explained simply by the, little, the, the motion of the smaller pieces. That there can be uh, the need for a higher scale description if you, if you actually came across phenomenon uh, that, that, that manifested themselves at that larger scale. So that's the, the beginning of an answer towards that question. Um, so I, I think the, the, the answer is going to be the answer of how exactly free will works in what are the mechanisms of free will are going to be rooted in physics in some sense, rooted in chemistry in some sense, rooted in biology in some sense, but also involving something, also involving something that's not simply physics and not simply chemistry and not simply biology. Um, I hope that helps. It's a sort of broad picture, but it's something that I think, you know, uh, requires deeper thought for sure, but I think is, um, it's, it fits in a pattern of a broader way that we think about the natural world, even in the contemporary, in the contemporary uh, even among non-Thomistic, uh, so, you know, um, and even non-Christian, non no, you know, uh, uh, philosophers of uh, um, uh, philosophy of chemistry, philosophy of biology, philosophy of the mind. These are the sorts of questions that people, and the sorts of ideas that, that uh, um, people are thinking deeply about. And, and a lot of people find the sort of Aristotelian Thomistic picture of trying to uh, argue for what's going on here, uh, very helpful. So that's, I um, hope that helps. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful presentation. Yeah. I hope you, you understand my primitive English. <laughs> I, I do. Okay. I was thinking about an analogy um, for the materialism of many scientists. It's like a cook who only thinks about food, food and all mm -hmm. of reality is, is about food. And in a similar way, a naturalist scientist could think that all of reality is, is equivalent to, to matter. And do you think that the Thomistic uh, distinction between primary and secondary causality is a good way to engage in a conversation with naturalistic scientists and philosophers to help them see that uh, there is some, something 
other than than matter and that the soul is spiritual and since you are a scientist what do you think are the best way to engage in a in a good no. discussion no absolutely i think um no i i think the image you you put forward is is helpful in, in a certain in a certain way it, it reminds me very much of uh, an image i love from gk chesterton um who's not necessarily a Thomist per se, but uh, you know has, has a lot of uh, uh, sympathies of the kind of classical. He's, he was a, uh, a convert to Catholicism and, and uh, um, a very kind of clever and interesting writer, and had all these amazing turns of phrase. And, and one of one of the ones he he argued for is that um, I'll try to do this briefly. There's a there's a general there's an idea that um, Christianity uh, uh, is um, uh, limits reason. That it is uh, somehow uh, it, that the Christianity, that faith, necessarily is constricting uh, on on uh, on our ability to think about the world, and in a certain sense, he says yes, absolutely. Uh, in the sense that if you believe something to be true, then the opposite can't be true. Um, that if you if you if you believe something, then yes, it's going to restrict the way you think about the world. Uh, and restrict the the what 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 you'll accept as possible ways of talking about the world. But he says that's not just true of Christianity. That's true of anything. That's true of any actual picture of the world that we have. It's true of a materialistic picture of the world. It's it's true of a platonic picture of the world. It's it's, it's true of any kind of picture of the world you have. That's going to, in a certain sense, uh, uh, limit the kinds of questions that you'll ask and the kinds of uh, answers that you'll accept. But what he argues is that Christianity, uh, more broadly, is a less restrictive way of thinking about the world than a materialistic way of thinking about the world. Uh, because uh, as a, 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 a Christian is perfectly able to ignore uh, the, the, you know, uh, uh, w w w when he wants to, to not think about God, to not think about the human soul, uh, a, a Christian can just look at the physical order and marvel at the, the the order and the structure and the beauty that's there, uh, and can reason about it uh, independent of uh, uh, um, uh, of their you know uh, can sort of set aside their belief in God while they're looking at this thing. Uh, it's not to say that they deny the existence of God or deny the existence of the soul, but they have a freedom to, to, to they don't need to bring that in in every question they ask, but they also have the freedom to bring it in when the, uh, when the time comes when there is a question that seems to go beyond. Them. Whereas a materialistic picture of the world, the way he describes it, this beautiful image that the, the materialistic, uh, the materialist can't let the smallest speck of the immaterial into their perfect machine. Um, that for uh, a materialistic way of thinking about the world, it's, it's, it's restricted to a certain, certain types of questions and certain types of answers that you can, uh, uh, can have. Um, and that a, uh, a Thomistic way of thinking about the world, or just more broadly, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of you know, other philosophical ways to think about the world are more open to broader and deeper questions. They don't deny the sorts of questions the materialist asks. They don't uh, uh, deny the sorts of questions we ask in modern science, but they open up the possibility of uh, more and broader and deeper questions. Um, importantly, also, it's, uh, you know, that, that the, uh, the very and, and, um, and, and it's 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 importantly it's also not that um, as you mentioned you mentioned briefly the idea of primary and secondary causality uh, 
I can look at, as a Christian, I can look at the very same thing and in one moment think about it purely in natural means. I can think about, uh, I, 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 I can think about the, um, you know, uh, um, the, the, the Millikan oil drop experiment from a completely physical way of describing, okay, what's the, the, the pieces and parts that go in here, what must be underlying, uh, uh, what, what's the, you know, the implications of what's going on here. But in a reflective mood, I can bring God into that picture and recognize that this contraption wouldn't be here if God didn't allow the universe to exist in the first place. He wasn't holding an existence and maintaining the order and structure that we see, that there's a place for God acting that is not contrary to the physical order, but actually underlies and builds upon it, uh, that there need not be conflict where when I'm doing science, I can't think about God, and when I'm, uh, or, 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 that there's no room for God. When I think about God, there's no room for science, that we can find a way to bring those two together and see that, that I, can, I can marvel at the, the, the order and structure of the physical world, but also or marvel at the one who gives it that order and structure and maintains it the way that he does. Uh, and so that there, uh, there, there, need not, there need not be a conflict uh, such that um, there's an impression uh, among both some Christians and uh, some non-Christians that you either have an explanation due from science or you have an explanation from God. Uh, if God's involved, science has no place. And if science is involved, God has no place. But that's not the, the, the Thomistic way of thinking about things. And it's not actually the classically Christian way of thinking about things. For most of the history of, of, of the Christian tradition, there's been a healthy recognition that the natural world is beautiful, but also that there's room for God, even in our description of the natural world. Uh, that we don't need to put God into our, science equa into our scientific equations, but that when we think deeply about what's going on in our science, it actually points to uh, the existence of God and his role in maintaining the world in the way that allow us to even begin to build up a scientific picture of the world. So it was a, a little longer than I hope, but I hope, I hope that helps. Uh, so there's, I guess looking at them kind of down at the bottom, there's a question about whether, whether the philosophy of Aquinas steers you towards a particular interpretation of uh, wave collapse and quantum, uh, quantum indeterminacy. Um, I would, I, I, this is something I'm, I'm wrestling with at the moment in a certain sense. I, I don't have, I, I don't think there is necessarily, I, um, there are people who are working on what you would argue as sort of Aristotelian interpretations of quantum mechanics. I think some of them are fascinating. Um, uh, I don't think there's sort of one interpretation that necessarily corresponds to um, kind of a Thomistic way of thinking about the world. But I think there are definitely interpretations that don't correspond to a Thomistic way of thinking about the world. I think, um, uh, um, I think there are interpretations of quantum mechanics that I know are wrong. Um, so I would argue that the many worlds interpretations of quantum mechanics, for instance, uh, simply can't be right. Um, that uh, um, it destroys the very possibility of the human person. Uh, it very destroys the very possibility of free will. It destroys the very possibility of doing science to get to the idea that there could be many worlds in the first place. Um, similarly, I think I, uh, um, uh, certain kind of uh, realistic interpretations of the wave function that would say that um, what really is real is the wave function as a whole, by which they mean a nearly uh, a, a fluctuation in a nearly, if not actually, infinite dimensional space uh, is what reality actually is. And the kind of three slash four dimensional picture of things that we experience is a projection off of that, an illusion that happens to come about 
uh, in one small little corner of this infinite dimensional space. Um, those are those are uh, in some sense they're you know they're following the mathematics of uh, of, of, uh, of of quantum mechanics, but they um, but they they I think that we can know for certain that those aren't the right way to interpret things. Um, I'd argue something similar about a kind of fully deterministic picture that comes out of say about Bohmian mechanics or something like that. That I think there are problems trying to push for a fully deterministic picture of the world. There's actually a really fascinating paper arguing that even even if the world were classical, uh, there still would be something like a measurement problem. Uh, the rough argument being that um, if the world is, if you if you actually wanted the world to be completely deterministic, then you would have to have uh, a real number of value for every physical quantity or question you might ask. So there's an actual real number of value for the mass of an object, for its position, and for its velocity. But a real number is an infinite infinite number of digits. Uh, a real number has an infinite amount of information in it. And so you have an infinite amount at every, uh, at, at any point in space, there's an infinite amount of information about what's going on in that point in space. And if we take a, a physical interpretation of what information is based on information theory and the relationship between information and entropy, you, can, you can't have an infinite amount of information in an infin in, 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 in small space. The necessarily would have to be some sort of cutoff or limit to how exact even classical physics could be in and of itself. Um, so I think there are, uh, and that resonates again with kind of a Thomistic way of thinking about it. Um, I think there is, uh, uh, what, I, what, I, what I would lean towards is um, that there is room for indeterminacy in the world, in, in, in the quantum world, uh, but that there is, um, uh, uh, that, there is that the, the solution to the measurement problem is rooted in the connection of the microscopic to the macroscopic. That is rooted in the fact that what we're, what we're looking at uh, and when we get down to that minute uh, macro, uh, microscopic layer um, is, a, is a part of a larger structure. Um, and so that the, 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 the picture that we're getting about the microscopic world uh, is necessarily incomplete because we're ignoring the fact that it's part of this larger structure. Uh, and that the, the, the weirdness that we see in quantum mechanics, the indeterminacy, um, the, the, the fact that, you know, the, the, um, indiscern the indiscernibility of particles that you can't actually tell the difference between different electrons, um, different weird factors that are, the, the very idea of entanglement kind of pushes in this direction that there are certain situations where you can't simply explain an electron, what an electron is or the state that it's in without reference to other electrons and other physical objects. That it's only when you look at the whole that you get the full picture. So I think that's roughly speaking the direction I would try to go with uh, in trying to understand quantum mechanics, but it's something I'm definitely working on the details of myself still.